Hey bosses, this week's sponsor is Audible. If you haven't been listening to audiobooks yet, go to investlikeaboss.com slash audio and get your first audiobook for free. Welcome to the Invest Like a Boss podcast. I'm Sam Marks. And I'm Johnny FD. We're self-made entrepreneurs who invest our own money and use modern technology to invest like a boss. Join us each week for exclusive interviews with our network of modern investors, business owners, and multimillionaires to discover new ways to invest our hard-earned cash. Hey guys, it's Johnny and welcome to episode 73 of the Invest Like a Boss podcast. I'm here with Sam Marks. Guys, Johnny, greeting, salutations. And we have a new topic, new category alert today. Johnny, talking about trend following. <laughs> ding, 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 new category <laughs> alert. I like it. I like how just when we think all there is is real estates or stocks or some kind of, you know, I guess technically this isn't going to be a new category, category yeah, as, in, right. as in more of a way to invest in these categories. New topic, I'll say. So I think this is kind of cool because it, it kind of is a follow-up on option trading. It's a follow-up on Forex. And now we're talking about trend following, which is just another strategy that you can apply daily you know, and try to figure out ways to outbeat the market. And the first time we heard about this was actually on the, the Meb Faber episode way back when. Yeah. So, I mean, it's basically going to be the exact opposite of investing in a low-cost index fund and just holding it and not you know trying to beat the market. But the reason why this is so exciting is because even though I know it's probably the more rational, smarter thing to do to just put my money in Vanguard and not touch it, part of me also wants to be able to – you know, to, I don't want to say beat the market, but, you know, find some strategies where I can have a bigger return than, you know, let's say the 8%. Yeah. Meb Favor said, I, I listened to a podcast of his a while back. He said, if you look back historically and backtest all these different strategies over the history of, the, say, the last 70, 80 years, which Meb is famous for, he says, if you look at value investing and trend following, they consistently outbeat the market. And that was the first time it really, painted it for me that wow you can you can put trend following on the same level as value investing of these these guys like warren buffett that have continuously outperformed for so many years you can put trend following strategy on that same level and i didn't know anything about trend following still don't so excited to learn more about it yeah me too so even if this doesn't become my new go-to investment vehicle you know as in putting the majority of my money in, maybe this is one of those things where I should put some money in to try to hit hit it big when when there's a new trend. So I'm excited. So we're going to have uh, Michael Covell on the show, and he's been featured all over the place. <laughs> he's I mean, a boss. Yeah, I think he was, he's been in Bloom, on Bloomberg, Wall Street Journal, uh, Fox, a lot of like Chinese shows too, like CCTV and like their version of – like these, you know, these, these basically these shows that, you know, that really feature authors and, and traders that we don't normally get access to. Mm -hmm. And he's also got his own podcast, tons and tons of great people on there. And he's wrote a best-selling book titled Trend Following. So we're going to talk to the boss himself, figure out all the inside information, how you can get access to Trend Following how you can implement your own strategy. And for people like you and me, Johnny, maybe just get our heads around what trend following is so we know how to have intelligent conversations about it in the future. Yeah, or just even know what it is at all. So <laughs> let's take a listen. 
to the interview right now. Hey guys, real quick, I want to thank our sponsor, Audible. If you haven't started listening to audiobooks yet, or if you haven't signed up for Audible, just go to our link, investlikeaboss.com slash audio, and you can get any audiobook for free, including the book by today's guest, Trend Following. So if you want to get his book completely for free and sign up for a free trial membership, just go to investlikeaboss.com slash audio to get started. Everybody, welcome back. Mr. Covell and fellow resident of the Orient. Thanks for coming on the show, man. Hey, thanks for having me on, Sam. Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you what, we're only an hour flight away from each other. I know you're currently in Saigon. It feels like it's the same neighborhood. It's all this humid, tourist-ridden hub that I seem to be more and more calling home. What was the, what initially brought you here and, and when? 2013. I mean, I first came to Asia 2006 for uh, a couple events in Hong Kong and Tokyo, respectively. And then I came back in 2008 to interview Jim Rogers but then it wasn't until 2013, and that was a bank out of Hong Kong hiring me for a speaking tour in 2013. It turned out to be a four-month tour, so I was like in 13 countries, 25 cities. At the end of that stretch, I was in Bali, and I was at my last stop, and I was like, well, I'm not going back to San Diego. But after two weeks of living in Bali, I was like, please, get me off the island. Right. And where did I have the most fun in four months? Mr. Saigon was calling. Excellent. Well, I think a lot of people share that experience with you in Bali. People get there and think it's paradise. And after three days, they just want to run, get on the first plane out of there. Yeah, it's kind of a weird thing, right? You know, you hear so much and then you kind of get there and you're like, I mean, I guess if somebody wants to isolate themselves in a very small compound surrounded by tropical trees mm -hmm. and not leave that small compound for weeks, I guess it's great. <laughs> but, you know, not my, not my thing. I need a city. Right. For sure. I, I feel you on that one. And Jim Rogers, what a great guy. You, did you fly over just for that interview? Yeah, I was making a documentary film at the time in 2008. I mean, I've since been back to interview him in person multiple times. In fact, last summer again, too. So yeah, he's a really, uh, he's a really interesting guy. I love his perspective. Well, I want to hear a little bit more about some of the guests towards the end of this episode that you've had on your podcast, some of, some of my, my idols and some of the, the best people in the business to have on the podcast. So I'm excited to hear a little bit more about that. But Mike, you wrote the best-selling classic, Trend Following, which is what we're really excited to dig into, especially more of the fundamentals. And could you give us just a little background on, you know, well, before we get into Trend Following specifically, how you initially got into Trend Following? Good question. So really dates me a little bit, but going back in time to summer of 1994, I had gone to Florida State that's and where this I went to school. A, that's, really? That's the connection. Ah, we didn't even know. I don't know if you do. <laughs> no, but I, I, got my MBA, I got my MBA from Florida State, and I wanted to work on Wall Street. Mm. I could only find one alumni that was on Wall Street, and this guy, his name was Jim Massey. He had just retired as the CEO of Solomon Brothers. I went up and met with him. It was a really interesting meeting, and he got me an interview, but you know, it just wasn't going to work. At the exact same time, almost... I picked up a magazine and it was Wall Street's top 100 paid for the year. And on that list was this guy named Jerry Parker, small little paragraph. And on this top 100, I think George Soros was number one. You know, this was in the early 1990s. And there's around 35 was this guy, Jerry Parker. And it said he was in his late 30s and he had just made 35 million for the year. And he was living 90 minutes away from me in Virginia. And he did not use fundamentals. He was not Warren Buffett. There was no value. He was using a trend uh, tracking system, and he was trained by somebody else. You know, you ever have those light bulb moments where you're just like, okay, whatever I've been told, I don't have the econ degree. I don't know what Warren Buffett knows. I don't know any of that stuff. But 
This guy, Jerry Parker, that I don't know, I don't know anything about him, but he used something called a trend tracking system that he was taught. That's all I needed to know. And mm -hmm. it's down the rabbit hole to figure out who he was, how he did it. And then it turned out that there was a lot of other people that were doing what he did too. For example, just to kind of give people a big picture perspective, the current owner of the Boston Red Sox, who was in Moneyball, made all of his money with this kind of trend tracking system to buy the Red Sox. So it's, it's just kind of this wow. great underground story that's the antithesis of Warren Buffett. It doesn't say there's anything wrong with Warren Buffett. It just says there's another way to approach it. Very interesting. And where did your career or your quest progress from that point forward? Was it was it books or was it a mentor or where did you go well, from you know, that point? Early, early on, it was a matter of, okay, who can I meet? And I just I mean, I ended up meeting John Henry at, at that point in time. And I met some other very, very accomplished traders, people that have appeared on my podcast or in my books, guys like Ed Sakota, Bill Dunn. These are names. If you Google, they just just amazing individuals. And I put up a website in the late 1990s. And that was the way it was kind of like a, a one of the first finance blogs. And that really started to get a lot of traction and it produced uh, a lot of profits. And then at some point in time, I think maybe in the early 2000s, after the dot-com crash, which this style of trading that I'm talking about is called trend following. But, mm -hmm. And trend following did very well, typically does very well in, in crashes. But after the dot-com crash, uh, you know, people started to get wind of what I was up to, at least from a business perspective and what I was doing online. And you know, people start to hate a little bit and say, you know, I got some critics out there. And I said to myself, you know what? Let's let's do a book. I'm, I'm talking about myself. There's no let's. It's just me. I'm going to do a book. And I got a random introduction to a publisher. And one thing led to another. And a first book came out in early 2004, first edition of Trend Following. And I still remember the publisher calling me up and saying, hey, Mike, this is really interesting. Do you know what's going on? I was like, what are you talking about, Jim? The book's not out yet. He goes, well, your book, and they were very skeptical that they were going to ever have anything. He goes, your book is currently uh, 500 on Amazon. I said, well, that's, that sounds good. You know, 500 of all books. Mm -hmm. And anyways, roll forward years uh, forward and that book, you know, sold over 100,000 copies. So pretty good for a kind of obscure trading book by a guy with no writing skills. <laughs> well, man, that's, I mean, I am still new to the, to the term trend following. I think the first time that we heard the term trend following. We had Meb Faber on, who I know has been a guest on your podcast a few times. And he was talking about trend following. And I didn't know enough about trend following during that episode to even actually ask intelligent questions. But I'm wondering if you could give us your definition for the layman out there on what, what trend following is and what, what specifically it pays attention to. I think the first thing to do is to think about the mindset. So the mindset of a trend following trader is not like is not unlike a guy named a guy like Ed Thorpe, you know, the guy that wrote Beat the Dealer, mm -hmm. or a guy like or a guy like Mike Aponte, who was the MIT blackjack team leader, who a guy that I had on my podcast. This this style of thinking is all about odds, and you're trying to find it, trying to find a mathematical edge. So you really don't care where you make your money. You're just saying, you know, as a trend following trader, you start the year and you say, you know what, I'm going to track. I'm, I've narrowed my portfolio down. I'm going to track. 50 markets, you name it. Could be from Tesla to gold to palladium to coffee, runs the gamut. Mm -hmm. So you just select this portfolio you're going to track. And you say to yourself, okay, I don't know what's going to happen this year. I have no earthly idea what's going to happen this year. But when markets start to move, 
either up or down, because you can trade long or short, right? So if markets start to move up, I want to take that position. I have no fundamental insight. I don't know what's going to happen. I can't predict what's going to happen. But if Tesla all of a sudden makes a new 200-day high, I'm buying Tesla. I don't know what's going to happen next, because it's not really a big deal that I don't know what's going to happen next, because I have a stop. So if I get into Tesla, boom, and I lose, let's say, 2%, I get the hell out. You got to roll that process forward across a portfolio, across entry signals happening on many markets. And what happens is, is you end up with a, a trading approach where essentially you're going to have 35 to 40% of these entries become winners, winners where the trade goes in your favor to enough, uh, the trend goes into your favor enough to where you can make some profit. You're typically going to have about 60% losers. If you crunch the math, and folks can do some quick Google searches to crunch it even more, you're essentially ending up with a positive mathematical expectation, kind of a, you know you can bet on this. I mean, look, anybody that's involved in poker, or sports gaming, uh, VC, I mean, it's the same thing. Look, if you're a VC on Sand Hill Road, you're going to take, and I just had Jason Calacanis on my show, mm-hmm. you know, if you take 19 positions and some, you know, angel investment. I mean, 19 of them are probably going to go dead. You're hoping one of them becomes Uber to pay for all the losses in the other one. Mm. And so it's a, it's a very different way of thinking. Whereas someone like Warren Buffett would go ahead and have, you know, this idea that I'm going to select some of these biggest names ever and ride them for decades, Gillette, Coke, et cetera. I mean, I've had very, very accomplished trend-following traders say to me, you know what, Mike, from a survivorship issue standpoint, I've got thousands and thousands and thousands more trades that I can show versus Buffett. And his point being, not to take anything away from Buffett, not to try and cast doubt, but to say, you know, look, there's always a little bit of luck involved in everything in life. Mm -hmm. Hell, we're lucky to be alive. Mm So before I keep rambling, but this is the idea with trend following is you're going to have this portfolio. It's going to, it's going to, you're going to have winners and losers and you're going to try and ride the winners as far as you can. And you're hoping those winners can pay for the ones that don't win the losses. So the winners you want to ride as far as you can and the losers you seem to want to cut short and cut your losses yeah. relatively quick. And I think you use the the percentage of 60%. You'll, you'll have typically 60% losers. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, just we're being very rough here. I mean, yeah. that's yeah, it's it's something like that. You're you're not gonna. I think there's gonna be very few trend following traders that will say, mm-hmm. oh yeah, you know, I've got uh, you know sixty percent winners or something. Or not right. like you know, if you turn on you turn on CNBC late night infomercial when you got some guy <laughs> who's telling you he's got ninety five percent winners. Well, if you think about it though, logically, if someone says you got ninety five percent winners, well, what happens you know to the losers if they're mm-hmm. enough to wipe you out? So it's not, you know, it's, it's, it, and also I, I tell you another, another name that people will relate to this style of thinking. It's right in Nassim Taleb's wheelhouse because that's really how he has done so well as well. Not exactly trend following trading using other instruments like options, but his whole thinking is, you know, let me find, let me, let me have a lot of small losses buying these options. And then when things hit, when things, when the shit hits the fan, a few will take off right. and it'll pay for everything. Yeah, I think it's interesting to compare different people's strategies and different asset classes. When we've done episodes in options or Forex, even card counting before, a lot of times they're, the odds they want to be winning 60%. But then you can go, say, to startups, like you said before, where you know 85% of your, your investments are probably going to be losers and you hope the winners 
ride it out. So it's interesting to hear trend following is is somewhere kind of in that middle range, but you can have 60% losers and still, you know, still do very, very well. Yeah. And I'll add to it. You just, you just mentioned Forex. So currencies would be something in the portfolio of a trend following trader. Mm -hmm. And what's so cool about a trend following strategy, and this gets back to my start, my light bulb moment, I don't have to know a damn thing about currencies. I don't have to know any of the fundamentals. It's just a price stream. Because at the end of the year or whatever time horizon you're measuring, do you really care where your money came from? I mean, that's that's the big point here. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, this shouldn't be an emotional attachment thing. It's like Michael Lewis's new book about Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. We really don't give a rat's ass about where the money comes from as long as we're profitable. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, right, if tomorrow, if you launched a widget business and it made you one hundred million dollars, you know, somebody might look down on it and say, oh, it's just a widget business. As you're sitting back laughing all the way to the bank, who cares? <laughs> uh, we, we did an episode on mutual, not mutual funds, um, municipal bonds. And we were trying to dress up municipal bonds as much as we could. So we rented a limo and went around Bangkok and, and talked about municipal bonds. And the guy was just like, hey, I don't care how boring it is. You know what's sexy? Making money. And I'm making money off trading these CEF municipal bond funds. And, um, I mean, everyone, everyone stumbles into some type of an opportunity. I mean, mm -hmm. I guess, you know, look, some things can be sexier than others, uh, you know, but uh, runs, runs the range of opportunities out there in this yeah. lifetime. So, Mike, you mentioned a, a couple of, I wouldn't say there's that much overlap in value investing and trend following. You had mentioned Buffett earlier, but it seems like trend following is a much, much more active approach than something like value investing, where you might be in investments for a very long time. And a lot of a lot of the work is actually built up into the research and preparing to, to get in those funds at the right time. Is trend following something that someone that is active that's doing this full time would they be would they be participating and making trades almost every single day? It's going to depend because ultimately we can't predict what markets are going to move. I mean, right now it's a very low volatile, uh, low volatility environment. So, mm -hmm. from a trading perspective. You could be trading end of day bars, end of week bars. Imagine taking a trading signal once a week. I mean, you don't you don't have to look. Just imagine turning off the screens, turning off the news, and you can trade a globally a globally diversified portfolio of you name it, from currencies to bonds to stocks to metals to agriculturals, and you're not looking at anything during the week. You're on a desert island, literally, and you've mm -hmm. just got a stream of numbers. Can you trade the stream of numbers? You're just trading numbers. You're not even. You're trading numbers and you're literally just playing a game. That's very, it's, so it's not day trading. This is not high frequency. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I sometimes have people that will come to me and they say, hey, you know, can I apply this trend following methodology to, you know, 30 minute bars? And I'm just like, well, maybe you can, but I've not seen that. So, you know, it's funny how people think people want to go that direction because I don't know if they instinctively feel it's safer or I don't know what the what the mm -hmm. rationale is, but right. uh, I, I would avoid the day trading stuff. That just seems seems like there's a lot of a lot more better ways to go than that. Right. What What would be some other common misconceptions when people get into trend following for the first time and and start wrapping their heads around it and how to how to profit from it? They do want to they want to hear that there's a prediction mm -hmm. that you know when you take the entry signal for Bitcoin that it will go to this. I mean, look, the only way that anybody could have traded Bitcoin in the last year or two would be a trend following approach. Because mm -hmm. if you're going to take Bitcoin from 500 to 5,000 to 3,000, and then when it gets to 3,000, what trading strategy will possibly 
you know, take you from either 500 to 10,000. I mean, you just can't know. Mm -hmm. And I think that that can't knowing part, human beings want to have certainty. They want the chaos to disappear. They don't want to be uh, stupid, so to speak. But, you know, trend trend following traders are stupid to what's going to happen. And I think that's part of the brilliance of it is being smart enough to admit, I don't know anything. Hmm. Very cool. Well, when are we talking about signals? I've heard the word signals come out a few times so far. And is this stuff, I'm thinking back to when you first started getting into trend following, you know, I guess back in the late 90s, there was less, there was less software, right? There's less mechanisms to to look at this stuff. But now there's all the all the types of software that I'm sure could, I don't want to use the word predict, but signal, I suppose. Well, signals, think about it from this standpoint, though, back to the 40%. If you take a signal, you don't know that it's going to go anywhere. So trend following is about buying highs and selling short lows, the opposite of value. So if a stock is making its new all-time high, mm-hmm. you're buying. I mean, think about what that causes the average human being to think. Oh man, what the fuck? It's at all time highs, and now I'm buying. Right. This doesn't this doesn't feel right. Well, that's part of the problem, right there. It's not about feelings. It's about you know what does the math look like when you crunch it. In terms of software, look, there's all different types of ways that one can track a trend following portfolio. But let's say you are just back to my 50 market portfolio. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're tracking 50 markets. You could sit there with some loose leaf sheet of papers if you're trading end of day or end of week bars. You're not looking at a huge amount of daily work in terms of the, the need for computing. Now, look, testing is one thing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, doing your homework in advance. But, you know, look, trend following strategies have been tested and tracked on computers back to the 70s. It's, mm-hmm. not, it's not new. I mean, shoot, some of the biggest hedge funds in the world that trade trend following strategies not but a few years ago were using Excel spreadsheets. Mm. That, that right there starts to say another aha moment, like, hold right. on. You mean some of the best traders on the planet, people that have made billions of dollars, have been using Excel spreadsheets? But hold on. This website, it's got all these bells and whistles and all these things going on. And it's so cool. Okay, well, that's great. But it's not doing anything. Right. The greens and the reds and everything flashing in your face. I mean, you know, I guess flashing in your face can be good for some things, but maybe not for <laughs> trading. <laughs> but not when it comes to stock trading. <laughs> so, it's you know, it's, just, it's, it's the, again, it's the, uh, can we, can we tie our emotional need to feel smart or right or whatever, can we put that to the side and can we just follow an approach? Can we follow a process? Can we follow a system mm-hmm. and know that we're never going to make money in a straight line? There's going to be volatility. Hey, look, even Warren Buffett, and I, I slapped this quote late in my newest edition of Trend Five, as Buffett is fond of saying, if you can't afford to lose 50% in the markets, you can't afford to be in the markets. Right. Now, 99% of all investors today don't believe that, but that's Warren Buffett, one of the most successful investors ever saying that. So what's going to happen when the next 50% downturn hits? It's going to be quite the shit show. Oh, God. It feels like there's so much like new millennial money in the market right now, especially in things like Bitcoin. My gosh. That it, but that's not necessarily – it's not bad if they have an exit strategy. I don't, you know, think if you, have, I don't think they have an exit strategy. <laughs> I mean, who's got an exit strategy for Bitcoin? Everyone's like trying to get rich off off of uh, three weeks. And I mean, people, people have gotten really wealthy off this stuff in the last few years. Some people have, but... Well, there's, there's the operative yeah. word, some, right? Mm-hmm. Some, some people walked away from the dot-com bubble 
uh, and made out like bandits. For example, like, uh, you know, Mark Cuban, uh, who owns the Mavericks and uh, Dan Schneider, who owns the Redskins. Both of those guys cashed out in their 30s, mm. you know, but there was plenty of other guys that didn't have the timing and perhaps that timing was just luck. They didn't cash out and they don't they don't own professional sports teams right. in 2017. It's a crazy world, huh? Yeah. Well, I keep reading in the every time I look at my finance news, I got the little finance app on on my iPhone and whenever I look, there's always these the same types of sentences or same types of headlines and it'll read something like Apple just breached his 200-day moving average in a bearish manner or in a bullish manner. But that it seems like that headline, not necessarily Apple, but for some stock that I'm tracking, is it's always a headline every single day. Is that considered trend following or and or technical trading or, or is there a difference so between the, the two? Yeah, there's 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 some mixing and mashing there. So for example, if you were to and this gets back to something you were asking about a second ago. So if you were to talk about a type of a trend following system, mm-hmm. it could be something like a moving average crossover, it could be a breakout that gets you in and gets you out a, a highest high to get you in some XYZ period, you know, 100, 200 days, a breakout that gets you out in the opposite direction. That's very different, though, than the headline you just mentioned. The headline you just mentioned is kind of like what I would think of as almost the bastardization of trend following. This okay. is like, this is taking, you know, trend following is a form of technical analysis, but the technical analysis that you just talked about, which is what you would typically see on Yahoo Finance or CNBC, will be somebody that comes on and says, the moving average crossover has just happened. Now I am predicting and telling you that this will happen. Well, that's just bullshit. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally everyone listening right now, if you can just drop that and realize that anybody that tells you they have a piece of technical analysis that predicts what will happen on one market in isolation, is just full of shit, <laughs> 100% full of shit, including <laughs> some of the biggest media properties in the world that put this, stuff, put this stuff out on a daily basis. Right, right, right. I, I don't know. Is cursing allowed on your podcast? Of course. The more the okay. better. We tr- sometimes have to nudge people to to let out a little bit of profanity. But you're, not, you're, I think I'm you're at like three, I think you're like three or four in, in the bag right now. If we could, if we could get that up to a, a, a baker's dozen, it'd be great. <laughs> I was I was screaming in a, in a podcast monologue the other day on my show something. I think I was basically telling the audience. I don't know who the audience is. Maybe no one will listen anymore. But I think I was basically telling the audience f you about some issue. So I. <laughs> <laughs> Why were they, they giving you bad feedback on something? No, I was just I was doing a kind of rhetorical debate with mm-hmm. myself and was saying, <laughs> if, if you take this position, F you. So that's yeah. That sounds like a lot of fun. Well, if you ever need anyone to yell at, I'm happy to sit across from you and you, I can be a little bit of a puppet audience. So just trying to peel back the layers a little bit for the layman who's new to trend following. The things, the, the kind of fundamental stock or company information matter when picking a trend following strategy? Like does does the the price to earnings ratio or the certain size of a company particularly play well when it comes to trend following? No, the the trigger for trend following is it's a price action based strategy. Mm-hmm. So it literally you're agnostic to the fundamentals. Okay. I mean you you could go back and you could have a trend following system. And you could backtest this and you could go back and say, how could I perform on Apple, Tesla, you know, the S&P or whatever without knowing the name of the company okay. or, the, or the, whatever the market is? It just doesn't add, it doesn't add any value. It's, it's interesting. It's fun. It's sexy, whatever. But it's not relevant 
to trend following. And that, and that you talk about misconceptions, that's a tough one to wrap your arms around really mm. for the first time. Hold on, Mike, but if I have this extra knowledge of Tesla, but doesn't that make the trend following system so much better? Well, I would say, well then, okay, code that for me, code that for me, test that for me, show me how your extra bit of fundamental something added to the trend following system, show me how that makes it better. At that moment in time, the whole conversation falls apart. Most people, when I confront them with that, if they want to stay firmly in the fundamentals, have some value, and I can add it to trend following, usually they go into some, some form of cognitive dissonance at that point in time. Then usually they start calling me names. Then there's some kind of ad hominem attack. And, and then usually you know, <laughs> I have to block them when they get too crazy. Um, so it usually goes down that path because there is, there's such a belief for, for folks. Now, if you, if you look at the investment world, if you look at the professionals and you look at the academic world, you're going to find both ways you can go. If both ways are defined as value and the other way being momentum or trend following, hmm. the academic community and the professional trading community look at both of those as viable options. Because what's so cool about them is they're not correlated typically. So you're always wanting, I think there was a line that I caught the other day, and actually I think it was Meb Faber talking, he was talking about something that Ray Dalio said on Tim Ferriss' show, and uncorrelated investments, that's what we all want, because if you can you know, get a little return in something that's moving at a different rate or change or period mm -hmm. than the typical stock portfolio, that's great. You know, you get a little extra return, you reduce the risk. That's what we're all shooting for. Yeah, I think Ray Dalio was saying, the, the holy grail of investing is if you can get 15 non-correlated bets, which seems kind of like a lot of bets, actually. But I would think with trend following, you could get a bunch of those going pretty quick. Well, you're going to get one for, for sure. So, for example, if you have a trend following portfolio and you can look at historical track, that, the other great thing about trend following, the reason that I had so much confidence in it and I was able to do some books on it was because there were so many publicly available track records. So I was able to look at track records that went back decades. So you could see the monthly performance on traders going back decades. And you could say, oh, okay, they all made money in October of 08. Hmm. Oh, okay. They all made money in March of 1995. Okay. They all made money in October of 1987. You can, you can look at these things. That's really, really useful information. To cut it short though, trend following as a strategy typically correlates to a a passive index or a typical stock portfolio at zero. Mm -hmm. It's the best in terms of if one only has stocks in some form or another, and you're just kind of traditionally long, trend following is like one of the best initial first diversifiers. Yeah, I, I heard Meb say one time that if you look back through history, that we know value investing has always outperformed the market and trend following as well. I was like, that's a that's a huge statement. That was the first time I ever really got my head around how powerful trend following can be. Yeah, there's some great resources out there. People can find them on my websites too, but a couple of free white papers that one by uh, AQR, Cliff Asness, a big heavyweight in the uh, fund management world, probably managing over 100 billion in assets, kind of like Ray Dalio size. Um, he's put some great papers out showing uh, trend following trading going back literally hundreds of years. Mm. And so they, they, there's people have gone back and done the back testing. And, and you might say, well, why does this work? Because human beings are batshit fucking crazy. <laughs> and they make decisions based off, you know, who knows what, however they're feeling at that moment, whatever emotional you know, whatever's going on, they, oh, I'm going to buy and sell now because I feel this or I feel that. Yeah. 
you know, if you, and if you kind of extrapolate and play that out over an entire market, and if you think about generations or always new generations are always coming in, and you also think about this being a zero sum game, you know, where you're going to have winners and losers and winners are taking the losers, uh, you know, this is just life. It's the circle of life. Tis it tis. Well, who out there is trend following right now? Is it is it typically retail investors or is it big institutions? Mixed bag, of course, I'm sure. Yeah, it's a mixed bag. So you're going to have, you're, it's going to be a little bit of all of that. Um, it's some professional trend following traders would tell me now that, that institutional players will accept trend following as a strategy. I don't know. You know, my newest edition of trend following, I was looking at the total assets. You know, if you say whatever percentage of, you say, here's the, here's the total pool of investable assets across the globe. Mm. I think my best guesstimate was trend following is like, like less than a, like a quarter of 1% or something. It was just, there was, there was no nothing. So basically the whole world is still, you know, passive index or in long, long mm. only mutual fund stocks. And, you know, look, if we have another stretch like we did in 2008, 2009, or 2000, 2002. And those were periods where you saw typical long only portfolios drop over 50%. I mean, look, most people today don't really remember that the NASDAQ dropped 77% 2000 to 2002. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Nikkei dropped 77% and says stayed down over 50% for decades. So I think that's one thing people should think about too, is that, you know, things can look really rosy and I'm not trying to be some kind of uber bear, Trend following happens to do very well when stocks get very bearish, but I think people should really think about what could happen mm -hmm. in the future. So and do that, you have a do you have a strategy that can adjust to what could happen? So does that mean that because there's not so many people trend following per se, that there is even greater opportunity to be a trend follower or to be to be investing in trend following strategies? I guess that's a good question. I don't know that there's any limits right now, for example. I don't think there's any kind of like, uh, okay, there's too many people doing this. Mm -hmm. I think if we look at, if we kind of look, if we take a step back, this doesn't help me as a trader, but if we take a step back and we look at the landscape of what's happened since March of 2009, there's been a lot of government intervention. Oh, yeah. a, lot of, a lot of things that none of us could have predicted or could even imagine would go on for almost a decade. Mm -hmm. So, with that as a backdrop, I think that the, the, for me, I start to say, gosh, what, what could that look like if it stops working? Mm -hmm. you know, I, I mean, all, all one has to do is pop into Taleb's Twitter feed for a few minutes and get a, few, get a feel for that. You know? And he's a little bit brighter than all of us. So. Man, well, Meb Faber's got this ETF, GMOM, I think. GMOM, GM, that sounds right. Uh, and that's a trend-following ETF, which, again, was one of the first times I, I wrapped my head around this stuff. I think he's you, you can buy that ETF openly. I think you can also get access to it through a Betterment account. Do you know how that fund would actually operate? Is that is that somewhat like an active trader managing that ETF, and they're they're facilitating all the trend-following within in it in a, a number of different strategies or funds? I don't want to speak for Meb, but mm -hmm. I assume that this is – and I looked at this uh, – a little bit before uh, this particular uh, instrument, it's a it's a trend following strategy applied to a portfolio. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if you really want to have fun with it, one could one could trend following trade the trend following ETF. <laughs> I mean, yeah. right? You know, you you could you could do that too. But I think that type of ETF and there's other products are designed to allow you to get that 
non-diversifier from a trend-following strategy. So you can buy these ETFs or mutual funds and add it to your traditional stock and bond portfolio Mm -hmm. and get the diversification element that I'm talking about. One thing that we've not mentioned on this conversation is rates of return. So you can pretty much look at the last couple decades and see that a lot of institutional investors have wanted less and less return. Because mm-hmm. you know, risk and return are it's double-edged coin. You don't get big returns without taking more risk. And if you look back in time at some of the most successful trend-following traders, they used more leverage back in the day. I mean, there was a demand for higher returns, whereas today you'll probably find a lot of institutional investors are scared of their shadow because of career risk. Right. And they're like saying, you know, hey, just take all the leverage out and just give us something very small. And so you start to, you start to also think about, hey, if, if, if everyone is searching for less and less risk and markets are less and less volatile, you can imagine from those kinds of periods, that's when the black swan swims in. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's fascinating times to look at this. And look, we just don't know what's going to happen. And I think if anyone could take from me today, it's the I don't know. I don't know. And there, someone sent me a great clip the other day from Game of Thrones. I'm not a fan of Game of Thrones, but it was a, it was a clip. Uh, you know, chaos is a ladder. You know, chaos is not a pit. When you're in chaos, just climb the chaos, the wall of worry. Climb the chaos. Put yourself in the middle of chaos, and you're at opportunity. Now, try to be comfortable with that. Well, hell, that's tough, man. That's tough. That's tough for the average person. Again, this would have been why. Daniel Kahneman won the Nobel Prize because he was able to point out all of these frailties in the human condition. I know you that you've studied trend following and backtested it through decades and decades. What does that actually look like? What is it like to study it? How does like how would you even go about putting a process together to to backtest this in all types of different markets? Today in 2017, you would want an off-the-shelf piece of software, something like TradeStation, Metastock. There's uh, other products called Wealth Lab or uh, Mechanica Software. I'm sure many of the brokerage firms have some taste, testing capability in their products, and that gets you going in the direction. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you want, if you could, if there's going to be a little bit of DIY and you're going to kind of dig in, you know, it's going to require a little bit of a little bit of elbow grease. You know, you're going to have to kind of okay, let me think about. Uh, how I'm going to approach a multi-market portfolio? How am I going to select my risk? How much do I want my leverage to be? These things become important issues when you're trying to put together a trend-following approach. So if someone wanted out there wanted to apply trend-following to Tesla, is there unlimited ways that you could cope a strategy around that? Or is there, with a single stock, is it, is it fairly straightforward on how to, how to get started with something like that? This, that's a great question in the sense that one market alone trend following would not be trend following because okay. if you get back if you get back to the mindset of if we start year one with a tracking portfolio of 50 markets, we don't know that Tesla is going to trend that particular year. If, tres, if Tesla doesn't move, if it doesn't show us a trend, we don't have any way to make money. Mm. If all if markets go sideways, we don't have a way to make money. We're going to lose money. If markets go sideways, we're going to lose money if markets go up and down and shop in what I would call a whipsaw. Actually, not what I would call a whipsaw. What people that have given me great insights over the years would have told me was would be called a whipsaw. In fact, everyone should definitely Google one of, believe it or not, one of the best trend following traders ever, 
super wise guy is basically one of my mentors and I would say consider a friend, but Ed Sakota has something on YouTube called the Whipsaw Song. Mm-hmm. It's Ed in a very his mercurial way playing the banjo, singing a song, <laughs> which, essentially, which essentially puts the trend following rules out there. And I'll have to tell you something fun about Ed. Several years ago, I was on a stage with him and another noteworthy trader named Larry Height. And the audience was filled, about 200 people. It was mostly the most successful fund managers in the world. And Ed got up and sang the song uh, live. And it was just, it was really just one of those moments where you say, gosh, you know, there's people in the audience that are just, you know, multiple billionaires sitting in the audience and everyone just gets it because sometimes this really is about Occam's razor. Mm. I mean, this is like, take the simplest path, take the simplest approach apply repeatable rules, be consistent, be disciplined, put the ego in check. And then, just then, if you're lucky enough, you might end up with something over time that looks pretty damn good. Does trend following seem to prefer, in terms of returns, bull markets, bear markets? Uh, You mentioned sideways markets doesn't do anything. I guess the point in sideways markets is you have to have a trend to make money. In bull markets, bear markets, has trend following historically perform better in either one of those? Bear markets, trend following has done exceptionally well. Okay. So Ben Stein, the actor, economist, whatever, came out and said after the fall of 2008, he said that if you made money in October of 2008, you were doing something wrong. Like every trend following trader made money in October of 2008. (laughs) But I mean, just if you think about it, like, hold on, why why is somebody telling me if you made money in October of 2008, means I was doing something wrong when I can look at all these track records of all these people not affiliated with not affiliated with each other mm-hmm. who all made double digit returns in October of 08 and then you start to say well god does does this guy who's on the tube really even know what the hell he's talking about well the answer is most people on the tube don't know what the hell they're talking about they're not there to tell you anything useful they're there to get you to watch because they make advertising dollars off you watching so what can go wrong Someone wants to get into trend following right now. I assume there's there's lots of different ways they could do it. They could do it. They could apply it themselves. They could invest in a fund like Medfaber's GMOM. What are, what would be some other ways that they could potentially get access to or invest in trend following? For example, my newest edition of trend following, and this is not necessarily a plug, but it's the best place that I know to send people. Mm-hmm. If you're looking for uh, names, if you're looking for names of people that have funds or Mm -hmm. mutual funds or ETFs where you can do your homework, look at their track record and say, you know what, this particular trend following trader typically would have made 30% in October of 08. This trader, this style of trend following would have made 10% in October of 08. So you can start to make comparisons and say, how do I feel about the leverage choice of this particular trader? Mm -hmm. Do I want to always be shooting for the home run? Do I want to be in a position to where I could possibly make 100% a year, which is going to take more risk, which means also a steeper potential drawdown? And all I mean by drawdown is if you have $1,000 in investments and it goes to 50, uh, 500, um, that's a 50% drawdown. Uh, It doesn't mean you've necessarily lost it because it could be open positions, but you have to decide that those types of things. You have to decide or you have to look at, do I want to be with a broadly diversified portfolio that includes currencies, commodities, et cetera? Or do I want to be in a 
a stock only portfolio. I think also when you mentioned something about Tesla and when you're talking about one market only, mm -hmm. trying to be a trend following trader on one market only, mm -hmm. if you were only doing that and you were only tracking Tesla and you had all of your money on Tesla, then you're limited. You don't have, if Tesla doesn't do anything, if Tesla doesn't move, this is why even with Bitcoin, I mean, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to be a trend following trader on Bitcoin alone. alone yeah. But I, I would say to somebody, if they're in Bitcoin or a few other cryptocurrencies, modify your thinking at least and have a trend following thinking. It won't be a perfect trend following system, but modify your thinking to where you say, okay, when Bitcoin reaches an all-time high and it retraces off the all-time high 25%, I give up 25%. Then I'm going to get out. Mm. You know, no questions asked. Well, when do I get back in? Well, when it gets back to the all-time high again. So you mean I'm going to lose that money? Then I have to wait. Well, can I buy it on the dip? Oh uh, yeah, the favorite. You know, no, you can't buy it on the dip. The dip isn't the dip isn't necessarily real unless you've gone ahead and tested and decided yeah. that buying the dip is a smart thing to do. But again, we're talking one market only. So I'm I'm literally just getting some kind of modified trend following thinking to those people that might not be familiar with trend following that might have a cryptocurrency investment and might be saying to themselves now, after this volatility, what the hell do I do yeah. now? Well, I guess when I just, I just think conceptually to trend following, and it's just on price action. You know, if I mm. think of, of a, a typical stock, let's, let's just go back to Tesla. If you're just paying attention to price action, or let's say the all-time high of, that, of the, the, the stock, I guess that would be a reflection both on a bit, on a few things, but one would be kind of company fundamentals. The company must should probably be do, be doing pretty well if it's at all time highs, and also a lot on human emotion. You know, it could be a hot. Well, new the thing. dot com, the dot com companies right. were vapor. Were, the dot com companies were vaporware. Yeah, I mean, right now Bitcoin's vaporware. Really, I mean, there's nothing backing it. Yeah, it's exactly. just belief. Mm -hmm. So you could, you it could be either way. Mm -hmm. You could have fundamentals that back that massive move. Or you might not. Now, typically, if you do the wash for years and years and years, there should be some alignment there. But what happens when there's no alignment between the fundamentals and the trend? Right. What happens when there's no alignment between the fundamentals and the price action? That happens all the time. And that's why, I do, that's why I think for me, I get that if somebody wants to put a significant portion of their assets into something like indexing and they don't want to think about it and they don't want to stress about it, okay. But- you know, look, I mean, stuff happens. Yeah. Stuff happens. And it just doesn't always go how you're going to imagine. So having, again, that non-diversifier mixed in uh, makes a lot of sense. I think that's really interesting. And one of the very compelling things to me about trend following as I'm starting to get my head further and further around it is that, it, I guess, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's not, you're not trying to figure it out. You're, you, it's literally a trend. It doesn't matter if it's human emotion or because the company's outperforming. It's just a trend and you're looking literally at one variable, right? Or, or kind of one component that is considered the signal. And then you, yeah. you, make, you, and make, you, you make your strategy based off that. And that's tough because mm -hmm. we're all like, you know, we're all creatures of trivial matters and trivial pursuit. And we all kind of want to know why. And what happens if you can't know why? <laughs> and I think if we're all honest with ourselves and we were to look at moves across markets over the last three decades, Absolutely nothing was predictable. None of it was predictable. I mean, come on. No one knew Jeff Bezos was going to be Jeff Bezos 
today than he was 10 years ago. Nobody was predicting even five years ago that Jeff Bezos was going to be the richest man on the planet. And right? Were they? I don't recall that. You notice how much these guys have redone their look, like Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, in the last five or ten years. I mean, you look at a photo of them ten years ago, Bezos, they were, they were hideous. Bezos like he's on roids. Yeah, they, I, think, I think they all are. <laughs> and they've, they've all had a hair transplant or two. Look at Elon Musk, who's got too much hair now. My gosh, I guess if you, I guess you're well, going to be a billionaire, you might as well look the part. Yeah, it's like, yeah I, 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 I'm not going to argue that part, I guess, you know. But I'm, I'm looking <laughs> You you keep it short though it looks like so you you you're you're just not fighting it so that's smart. Oh, it's it's the humidity and uh, yeah as it gets thinner it's just better to better to keep it short easier to wear a hat and go to the gym and stuff hide it a little bit. <laughs> well, Mike, give us an update on the book and I mean we've been talking about trend following. You wrote the book on it. I know you've had a few reiterations of it. It just came out on Audible I think in June 2017. So I highly recommend that to the listeners. But what can we expect from the book and I know it's just loaded with research and some of the things that we've been talking about. You know, one of the things I did way back in 2004 with the book for the first time was I had this idea and I went to the pub when I had the, I got the publisher, he was going to, you know, gave me 15,000 bucks to write this book. And I said, Hey, I want to put just random quotes in the side margin, you know, just, and so that's what I, I, it's one of the things that I really love about the hardcover. You don't see it as much in the Kindle. It's hard on the Kindle, but the hardcover, you've got like the, the content, but then I've tried to put complimentary pieces of wisdom, and it could be. I mean, God, I've got quotes in there from Animal House. I mean, you know, it's, it's what, whatever whatever interests me. Miles Davis. I mean, things you would not expect to be connected to trend following to get people into the mindset that all of this is just psychology. Mm. Really, you know, this isn't. You know, the the math and the trading is just a way to manifest human behavior. So it's just you I mean, think about it. You know, people are just nuts. Yeah. And so if people are nuts and people have money, so we know that's true. People are nuts and they have money. So when crazy people have money, which we're all crazy and we all have some money, then we go to the markets. Why should we expect crazy people with money to do smart things in the markets? Well, it doesn't happen that way. So how can you, Mr. Listener, how can you figure out a way to take advantage of all these people that want to throw their money at the market with no strategy? Mm. Again, it's zero sum. Can you think up a strategy? Can you devise an approach that will take the losses from people that don't know what they're doing? That seems like a good approach. You know, I can remember my first time losing money in the market. I was sitting in my fraternity room at Florida State. I put in all of my money that I had saved at summer jobs. And I was graduating in 2000, late, or early 2008. And right when the market started having big hiccups in 2007, I remember logging in and I'd lost like, $4,000 or something in a day or two. And I just totally flipped out. I was like breaking up with my girlfriend, lost that money, sold everything. And actually selling everything wasn't the worst thing because it would have gotten a lot worse. But I think it just goes back to like this whole, this whole, it's so easy to invest now. And you have this whole millennial generation that's, you know, super high tech. Everyone's getting into Bitcoin. It's so easy to open a trading account, start trading. I just worry that a lot of them, because we're not taught. I don't know what you learned at Florida State. You got your MBA. I just got my underground. I didn't learn anything. I didn't learn any of this at Florida State. I didn't not learn anything zilch. at Florida State, period. I like Florida State. We got to be careful here that we, we people don't think we're completely slamming on oh, it. Oh, no, no. It's, these oh, kinds of things yeah. you don't learn in college, period. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I love Florida State. But yeah, you don't learn anything about finance in college. And that and that really hurt me getting out of college. It was this this long upswing. I had to learn, you know. And, and of course, when I was graduating, I was going. It was 
it was 2007, 2008. So it was a really difficult time to be graduating and learning the, about these things. Um, but yeah, I, wor- I do worry about a lot of the, the millennials out there. They're getting really into investing now and putting all their savings into investings, but haven't gone through a big drawdown yet. And that 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 concerns me for for their generation because it's hard to get out of those situations if you lose it and you get out at the wrong time. It's really hard to to pick you know roll up your sleeves and get back at it. Could I say something perverse? Yes. I'm not worried. I'm not worried about it at all. I hope they give me their money. <laughs> I go. hope they screw up. I hope they don't know what they're doing. I hope they panic at the wrong <laughs> time, and I hope I make more money because of it. I mean, that's the way the world goes around. Look, yeah. here's another here's another great way to think about. It. You brought up fall 2008 again. Mm-hmm. Omaha Daddy himself. What did he do that was so brilliant in the fall of 2008? The fall of 2008. I mean, literally, we all thought the ATMs were going to stop working. Mm-hmm. But Buffett clearly knew the ATMs were not going to stop working. And what did he do? He just walked around and he picked up every damn company he could, pennies on the dollar. Yeah. Now, he was the guy that had powder dry because he knew, he knew chaos was here. He knew what to do. He had a plan in advance. Mm-hmm. And look, he, he's had, he had had some underperformance for the prior decade. You know, He didn't do as good during the dot-com bubble and all that kind of stuff. But he stuck with his approach. He didn't really care what other people had to say or what they, you know, what they do or whatever. And he just stuck with his thing. So, yeah, I, you know, I hear you about being worried about people, but I, I think, you know, the reality is, is we should all think of ourselves as mercenaries yeah. in the markets. And the idea is to not lose all of our capital. You know, the best way to make money is not to lose all of our money mm-hmm. and hopefully put our, hopefully put ourselves in a position to do really well as big trends come and win the game as well. And I, I, Buffett, He's sitting on t- twice as much cash as he was back in 2007, 2008, I believe. I heard that's a rumor, but that's a pretty, pretty interesting piece of cons- thing, uh, you know, advice to consider, basically. You know, I think, it's, I think one thing, too, to think about Buffett, not taking anything away from him, but there isn't, a, there's only one. I mean, mm-hmm. there's only one. And I always thought that was something interesting about trend following. There wasn't only one. There was all of these different players. You know, this guy, Salem Abraham, I met years ago lives and works in Canadian Texas, the panhandle of Texas, nowhere near anything. David Harding in London, you know, John Henry was in Southern California for a long time. He's in, he went to Boston. I mean, you know, there's just a, there's no, there's no perfect whatever. And, I, and there's so many different people doing it, different personalities, different political persuasions. There's only one Buffett. Would you call him the, what of Omaha? Big Daddy Omaha. Big Daddy, Big Daddy Omaha. Omaha. Yeah, I mean, he, come I on, loved his documentary. Started. His documentary was fantastic. I had a lot more respect for him after watching that documentary. I thought it was great. He is, you know, but he also, even though he has this value approach, he's not just a buy and holder. I mean, he's a complicated hedge fund with insurance mm-hmm. companies spinning off cash. You know, he knows what his bet size should be. I mean, this gets into things like, you know, when you talk about uh, gambling and stuff and you talk about the Kelly criteria, fortune's formula of good book recommendation, by the way. Uh, people should check that out. That Got for it. sure gets into the headspace of of trend following. Mm. All the listeners out there, you want to hear more from Mike, dude? You 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 are a content machine. How many podcasts have you done so far? Uh, close to six hundred. Six hundred, and they are excellent. I mean, some of the guests are legendary. Got of course Tim Ferriss on there, James Altucher. You've had some of the best investors on there. So you do you do quite a quite a variety of successful people. Is there anything on there that you try to unearth on every single episode? 
I don't know what your process is exactly for, for guests. Mm-hmm. I, I think my current process is if someone has a book, I'll read it. If they don't have a book, I'll try and figure out who they are quickly and then maybe give myself a page of notes mm-hmm. and then turn on the call and go, I, you know, and see where it can go. I, sometimes, you know, it's like, it's kind of like, um, improv comedy. You, sometimes you don't, you can have all the questions, you can have the script, but sometimes it's more interesting if that person says something to go down that path, because you can tell they're really interested in it. But what's hard about that, and you know this, is that, okay, I have to be planning ahead mentally for the next few minutes because, you know, I've got to keep this whole thing going. Right. So it becomes a real challenge. It makes, I'm sure you can appreciate this too, it makes people like me and you that do a podcast really appreciate the brilliance of someone like Howard Stern. Mm. I think the guy's just a phenomenal interviewer to, you know, to, to really have that ability to have some direction of where you want to go, but then improv it off what somebody says. Boom. Yeah, I agree totally. Sometimes when we get on some of the, the CEO types on the episode, they got to pass it through legal and they got to pass it through PR and we end up having to do a bunch of post edits. So I like to get scripts across to them first just to make sure they're happy with the content and comfortable. But the improv always goes better. The more interactive, it's always better. And um, appreciate it's funny you. you say that, though. It's funny you say that, though, because, you know, it's I would give a piece of advice since you and I are both doing these, these mm-hmm. shows to people out there that want to go on shows. Don't do what Sam just said. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to go on the damn show, don't do an infomercial. No one, li- no one wants to listen to an infomercial. Right. If you're not going to be a real person, just don't do it then. I mean, you know, if, if, you, if, 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 if your world is so you know, precarious that you can't talk without the attorneys and PR being involved and they're worried about every word you're going to say and you don't trust the host, then just don't do it. Yeah, agree totally. Well, guys, check out the podcast read the book. Mike, it's been a ton of fun. Hopefully we cross paths very soon in Southeast Asia. And until then, stay out of trouble in Saigon, sir. Thanks for having me on, Sam. We appreciate it, buddy. Thanks a lot. All right. So I don't know if I'm more confused or less than I was before the interview. This is a big topic. This is a big topic. It's complex. And I've been reading reviews. I'm going to read his book, Trend Following. I've been reading reviews on it. It's supposed to be the Bible on trend following with a lot of back history on trend following, a lot of historical data. I love diving into that stuff. So I'm really interested to start looking at more charts and see how this stuff has really performed in bull markets, bear markets, swan markets, sideways markets, all different types of things, but really piqued my interest in this stuff. And now I know, you know, when I start hearing these words, trend following, I'm not just talking about going out and buying Louis Vuitton sunglasses, Johnny, because I'm a trend follower, but I'm also really fashionable. So we're talking about a different type of trend following now. Well, you know, to be honest, before the interview, I assumed that trend following meant, you know, when you hear everyone talking about, let's say Tesla stock, that you buy Tesla stock, you know, and I guess it sometimes it correlates that way because if everyone's talking about it, most likely the market's going up and they hit an all-time high, so then you mm-hmm. get in. But at the same time, it sounds like it, even if people, nobody talks about it, just as long as on paper, it hits a new market record. So when it hits a new market record, you invest and I guess you just follow that trend until it dies or, you know, until you hit 
an, another market peak and I actually don't know when to sell. Maybe that's why I need to actually read the book. Yeah, I think it's cool because it almost sounds like you don't need to know anything about stocks. It's almost strictly based on price action. So you don't need to know how to value a stock. You don't need to know the fundamentals of the company, the management. You're just strictly looking at price action. But I actually pulled up the definition in Wikipedia for trend following. So I'll just read it real quick. It's just uh, three lines. So trend following is an investment strategy based on technical analysis of market prices rather than on fundamental strengths of the companies. In financial markets, traders and investors using a trend following strategy believe the price tend to move upwards and downwards over time. They try to take advantage of these market trends by observing the current direction and using this to decide whether to buy or sell. So pretty much like we're talking about, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And I guess it, it, it's almost funny that it's almost the exact opposite of fundamental or value investing where you want to see you know, if a company uh, is undervalued and it should be worth more. For, for this, it's, it's almost kind of like regardless you know disregarding what the company's actually worth if it's profitable or not how it's being managed as long as it's hot it's hot and if it's going up it might continue going up yeah so i would like to know when trend following goes bad like i would love to know have known about trend following more when someone like phil town was on the on a previous episode talking about strictly about value investing i know i don't think there's a lot of overlap between the two strategies but it would be good to get a value investor's opinion on trend following strategies yeah and you know without reading the book without knowing i, I think in my mind right now the way it w- would work is you know we set some some auto buys somewhere for mm-hmm. let's say if a stock uh, hits a new all-time high and let's say the all-time high is a hundred dollars we buy it and then if it drops more than I don't know how many percent, let's say ten percent or something, then mm-hmm. it automatically sells and we lose ten percent. But if it goes up, I'm I'm kind of wondering how do we know when to you know when to sell that stock as as, as it goes up because it might go up to 110 you know ten uh, percent or it might go up to 120. Do we just also sell set a auto buy to say okay if it if it goes up to a certain per- amount, but then we might lose out on the upside. So maybe what it is is we just let it ride, you know, as high as it wants. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, if it starts dropping more than X percent, then we sell. Yeah, I have to believe that there's software to handle this stuff top to bottom. Just like in the the options episode that we did with Kirk Duplessis, where you basically just decide on a strategy, you implement a few variables, and then you, you kind of decide on what you what you want your win-loss ratio to be. And then it just handles a lot of the stuff for you. I think Kirk was saying he spends like 20 minutes a day on it or something like that. Uh, there's okay. got to be there's got to be software for this because this would seem e- almost easier in a sense, right? Because it's just looking at price action. So it's and if if it's back tested against so much historical data and so many historical strategies, it should know that okay, here's a stock. Let's look at the stock chart over the last 10 years. And then it, it comes up with some type of strategy for that stock or that basket of stocks. Maybe it's tech or maybe it's energy, but it, maybe it's a specific uh, strategy just tailored to that, that category of stocks. I, I don't know, but it's cool. So we always hear about backtesting and it sounds like it's, you know, since we can't predict the future, it's the best way we can predict, you know, what prices are going to do. But then you also see, you know, literally everywhere that um, you know past performance does not equal future success or something, right? Or future value. And I'm wondering if that 
I mean, I'm sure that's, you know, that that's just a way for them to kind of cover their butts. But also, I, I wonder, maybe there's some truth in that where even though that's probably the best information we have so far, I wonder how accurate that is. I wonder if, you know, something that you know might have been true in the past may not be in the future. I always think so, right? But I always think we're living in different times than than were before. I always think that our generation's different than than the previous generation, and that especially now with with, the, with all this technology and the technology revolution that's going on, I always think things are different. But I don't know that they're that different when it comes to markets. You know, I, is the market could the market go be up to, you know twelve or fourteen percent in the years to come, just be, on average over the next decade because of the technology boom, or is it going to fall back to the historic means of you know seven or eight percent? I always think times are different, but I think people that have lived through more uh, and seen seen the markets for longer would probably disagree. Yeah, uh, that's crazy. So I don't think we'll get we'll get a concrete ans- answer on that anytime soon. Uh, but it is exciting times. I'm I'm curious, how are your options uh, doing right now? The op the option trades I made. Yeah. Uh, I won two and I lost one. And if I recall, the one on Facebook, I be- oh, man, the terminology, you, you, you caught me off guard here. Okay, I think I sold a call on Facebook, which meant I own Facebook. And if it hit a certain price, I would have to sell. That one I won, which means I just cr- collected the premium and kept my stock. I did the same on Alibaba, which I lost. So I had to sell my, my Alibaba stock. I collected the premium, had to sell my stock. Still did well with my Alibaba stock, collected the premium, wasn't upset, but would have made more money if I had held the Alibaba stock. And the Tesla, I sold a put on Tesla and I won that, which means I, I collected a really good premium. I think the premium was like $1,200 and I didn't have to sell my stock. So okay. it was a really fun experience overall, made money, learned a lot. And yeah, I'll do it again. It's not it's not something I'll do every week, but there's a few you know, a few stocks that I have or a few stocks that I'd like to get that I can implement an option strategy to either collect a good premium and or pick up stock at a price that I'm happy to pick it up with. Okay. I, I like that. I'd be curious to more hear more during our Q3 updates on that. Mm-hmm. But as far as trend following, uh, what do you think? Is, is this something you're going to explore more of? I'm going to try to get the book on audio actually because it's a pretty big book. And it just came out on audio. So yeah, all these things, I, I just love l- learning about it, especially once we've had a guest on or have a guest coming on. You can really just dive into this stuff. And and uh, especially these new topics, it's great to get a better base for it, to have these conversations in the future and keep your eyes out for opportunities. Yep. I, I like it as well. So let me do some more research on it before I, I commit to yes or no. But I think it's always good for us to learn more. I like the concept a lot. I, I really like anything that you don't put emotion into and you just look at the numbers yeah. and you know you just kind of set it and forget it. So we'll see how that goes. Absolutely. If you guys want to check out his book, we'll leave lo- uh, links in the show note. It's on audio, Kindle, and hard copies, but it's called Trend Following by Mr. Michael Covell. So Mike, thanks for coming on the show, man. It was a lot of fun. Yep. Thank you, guys. And thank you guys for for downloading and listening and for subscribing. If you guys haven't yet, please leave us a review on the iTunes store, on Stitcher, or really wherever you guys listen to your podcasts. Because of you, we can get these big name guests and continue doing the show. Thank you guys and see you next week. Bye-bye. 
Thanks for listening to the Best Like a Boss podcast. Join our mailing list at bestlikeaboss.com to get exclusive access to our insider investment portfolios and our private members forum. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends and leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps more than you know. See you guys next week.